Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. When the owners of the Tote announced the venue would be up for sale a couple of months back, it sparked memories of the Save Live Music Australia, or SLAM, rallies that sprung up back in 2010 when liquor licensing reforms by the then state government threatened the venue's future as a music venue. Once again, there's been a wave of community support to try to save uh, the Tote from falling into the hands of developers. Owners of Last Chance Rock and Roll Bar in North Melbourne led a crowdfunding campaign calling for $3 million, which would allow them to purchase the venue and keep live music going there. Negotiations over the Totes purchase are ongoing, but this whole affair raises once again the issue of how and whether it's worth preserving venues amid a changing city. Dave Nichols is Professor of Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne. I've seen him at the Tote at least once, and that makes him qualified to give his two cents. Hi, Dave. How are you going? Hi, Dylan. How are things? Going well. Good, good. Yeah. Um, no, so the answer's no. See you later. <laughs> no, the, the answer is, is very complicated. And the tote, I mean, one of the things about the tote, yeah, it's true. I mean, um, you've, you, yeah, I've seen you there. Um, and I've been there many, many times. Mm. And in fact, I think of the tote as the one venue that was around when I started going out to see bands. I think it opened as a music venue in 81. Mm. And um, I, um, so, you know, over 40 years ago and... Uh, I started going out to see bands when I was like 16 or 17. So it was around then and it's the only one that's remained uh, as far as I can recall for over all that time. But in some ways I sort of feel, and I've I've expounded on this to anybody who cares for the last, which is nobody, by the way, for the last 20 years. <laughs> There's one or two listeners out there who I think value you. Well, okay, opinions. well, that's nice of them. Thank you. But um, the... Um, it's it's really part of its status is the fact – part of its value is the fact that it's lasted so long in yeah. that same basic role over all this time. Um, you know, in the 70s, it was a restaurant. Ooh, yeah. Can you believe that? Uh, what imagine did they eating there. Yeah, I don't – well, I'm a bit confused. There was, a, there was an establishment called Tony's Trattoria on the corner of West uh, Wellington and Johnson, but I don't know if it was that corner right. or whether Tony's Trattoria was another corner. I can't quite get a handle on that, but there was – um, th- there were ads in the seventies for a chef. I've done my little bit of res- my tiny little bit of research. Um, there's been, there were ads in the paper for a chef for the for that um, for the Ivanhoe Hotel, as it was known um, in, the late, in the late seventies. Totoria is Totoria. Totoria could have been the yes the business opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So it was the Ivanhoe Hotel, which of course I mean that was that's confusing because there was also a hotel oddly enough in Ivanhoe of that name. So they they were smart getting with that tote that tote thing, but. Uh, and uh, maybe that's one of the things that appeals to people because it it supposedly references uh, Power That Glory, you know, m- amazing novel written in uh, published in the late forties, early fifties by Frank Hardy, which seemingly describes um, that particular establishment as a um, you know place for illegal gambling run by um, John West, aka John well, John West in the book, John Wren in reality. Um, I don't know that there's actually any real uh, connection between uh, John Wren and, and the Ivanhoe Hotel. But um, anyway, uh, I guess it's sort of interesting that the tote kind of harks back to that in a way. It seems to give us a connection even further, you know, for, be, be before the 80s, mm. um, before Tony's Trattoria into um, the kind of, 
the 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 seedy, um, very poor, um, you know, quite desperate Collingwood of of yore. And also, I suppose that the style of music that's been played there, you know, a lot at least over the time that I've been going out to see gigs, like sort of punk music, it's it's kind of by its nature a little bit sort of DIY, kind of anti-authoritarian, that kind of thing. The fact that it is sort of dingy and a little bit shit, I think, is appealing yeah. as well. It doesn't feel like it's trying to be anything other than, than what it is. Yeah. Are those some of the reasons why it tends to spark such strong reactions when we contemplate that it might not be there anymore? Yeah, look, I think that's absolutely right. I think it, it seems um it, it has that kind of it's found it found its niche quite early and it and it was a place where oh you know before anybody used the word grunge to describe a form of music but um that that kind of thing could um could happen there you know i, I remember seeing um ku klux frankenstein there uh, probably the first band i saw there actually you remember them dylan <laughs> I don't I don't know. you weren't born um but uh yeah, the, so that so all of that kind of stuff uh, uh, absolutely um, certainly has been a, a locus i mean my point would be and the reason why i i mean i was joking but the reason i said no was i feel like in a way that world is gone you know like the ivanhoe hotel if anyone had said to the proprietors of that place 40 years ago well one day this will be worth six million dollars mm. you know i mean barring a kind of weimar germany sort of um uber you know massive overinflation kind of thing they could not imagine that 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 site would ever be worth anything yeah. much more than than not much and so it's um you know collingwood has changed so massively particularly in the last 20 years and and has gained so much real estate value and we're in this completely mental situation in melbourne of you know uh, distinct lack of housing and so on um you know you do sort of feel like you can preserve i feel like you can preserve the tote and we'll get on to the minutiae of of this current campaign mm. as in a second i i hope but you know you can preserve the tote but what you know you can't I mean, sorry to say it, but, you know, um, I, I'm never going to get my teenage days back. Um, and actually, between you and me, I'm kind of pleased about that. I'm, I'm glad of that. But some people, skin? I think, are, are quite sentimental about things that have happened there. And I don't think you can, you know, um, you know, short of a sort of, um, you know, some kind of laser um, hologram show a la the ABBA show in London, you know, you're not going to bring back the kinds of things that, you know, I saw uh, Roland Howard this year and now I'm going to start, you know, reminiscing. Reminiscing, that's right. Last time I saw Roland S. Howard play was at the top. Amazing show. Yeah. Absolutely. There's been some amazing things that have happened there. But, um, and and amazing things will continue to happen musically in Melbourne. But I, I think that the Collingwood of even 2010, is 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 gone. Well, I remember around the time of those slam rallies, and, and of course there was like you know huge street protests around that. It's not yeah. the same as what's kind of happening now. But the reason I brought it up is because I think there are sort of some parallels in the fact that the tote is kind of symbolic of something else, of a changing city, and, and how we can continue to have a kind of thriving music culture in venues that we know and love, and not just sort of hand them over to developers to do whatever they, they want with, I suppose. But at that time, I remember people saying, oh, look, I haven't been to the tote in years, but I kind of want it to, to stay there. Like, I want other people to yeah. go to it, but, yeah, 
truth be told, I don't kind of get out there every week like I used to. Um, and there's been kind of similar sentiment with people getting on board the, the campaign to save the tote this time around saying, I don't go, but I like what it represents. Yeah, yeah. And to that, I would say, you know, the reason that it was able to exist and be the reason it was able to be created as, a, as the kind of place that it has been in the early 80s is because that was that was fringe you know, land. That was where nobody wanted to be. You know, it was it was uh, it was very other. And so, what you do if you want to if you want to honour the that kind of world, then you find another place that's other, and you go there instead. You know, and you make you make a venue there, and you and you know, uh, that's my feeling anyway. I think that it's there's a certain ambience to the whole thing that is that is lost. And unless you want to, you know, put it in epoxy resin and keep it, you know just sort of preserve it in, in, intact in, in situ uh, as some kind of heritage thing. Look, that's, that's, my, that's my feeling about it. And I understand why people feel very strongly about it. And I've, I've revealed that I've had mm. good times there. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not denying that. But I think that um, we are in a very, very different world. I mean, uh, yeah, very different. Speaking with Professor in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne, Dave Nichols, all about um, the, the totes being up for sale and, and also happening sort of um, related to that is a, a large-scale crowdfunding campaign from the owners of the Last Chance Rock and Roll Bar in North Melbourne. They were calling for $3 million to allow them to purchase the venue. They reached that target, I think, a couple of weeks ago when reportedly those negotiations are, on, are ongoing. But what do you make of, of a crowdfunding campaign mm-hmm. to kind of mm-hmm. save a venue, that, that you, model? You know what? I, I've been thinking about this too. And one thing that I just want to mention is that I think there's a really interesting model which goes back to like. 19th century of the community hotel which is which was the idea of you know back in the days i guess essentially of prohibition and places like um renmark in south australia where the proprietors of that town wanted to stamp out alcohol drinking altogether but failing that figured well at least we're not going to have people making a huge amount of money out of it so community hotels are established to to you know, properly regulate drinking, but also the money goes back to the community. No mm. one is making a direct profit off that. I love that idea, and I think that's something that people could look at. But anyway, the um, the other the other question about this specific uh, instance, I think there's a um, you know, so so ostensibly three million dollars was raised, and then it was revealed actually six million dollars is needed. Yeah. People were very upset. That's right. And I don't. I don't know that we really should be repeating some of the things that people have said on online mm. on the radio. It just doesn't seem. Yeah. It seems uh, it's, there's a lot of hostility there, there and a lot of up, upset and and accusations um, flying freely, but um, which is interesting in itself. But the um, and yeah, I mean, there's there's a, yeah, a lot of bile. Uh, I think that. Um, yeah, well, exactly what you said. I mean, I think that people are—they people are responding from the heart there. But it is a, f- a funny idea once again that you know that that three million dollars could even be raised for this is extraordinary. Um, and then you have—you do have that thing, okay? So does the government step in and front up with the other three million? And then what do we have? A, a government-run, you know, alternative venue? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, great, but. Um, it's, it does seem to, in some ways, uh, fly in the face of the the original uh, notion of that kind of place. I really think the the point of somewhere like the Tote is that it's, you know, it's it's a place that it should places like that should be places that don't have any other 
No, no one else wants them for anything. Mm. You know, it's it's marginal stuff. Um, it's not certainly not state sponsored. You know, alternative music. Good God! I mean, that's in one sense. There's a kind of slight appeal. To, it's kind of weird, kind of slight appeal to that. I've got to say, I remember Billy Billy Bragg saying, you know, forty well, maybe thirty years ago that you know, yes, the government should run record the record industry, and you know, um, but. Uh, Gosh, what I, would we get? I'd, I'm so <laughs> I'm intrigued, but I don't have. I wouldn't have high hopes. Yeah, and that, that's the thing, isn't it? That these kinds of places are, are loved because they're an expression of culture, and stuff happens there that's unexpected, and often it's a subculture or a counterculture that that is kind of resisting. It might be the mainstream, or it might be kind of um, sort of you know attempted sort of control over how we use our spaces, and that's that's part of the appeal. It's part of why we love these places as well. And I mean, I, I you know, it, it sounds like a great idea to have more government investment in um, in community spaces for music and, and that sort of thing. But I'm not sure they're the places that become, you know, what people are nostalgic about in the past. And, where and for all transformed. that, that, that's right. And also, you know, I mean, to to have that to have a place like that, then um, dependent on the kind of you know the the ebb and flow of um, government attitude to that kind of thing. I remember in 2010, I remember um, there were placards outside the tote with liberals love live music. I always thought that was really funny. In fact, that's my that's my abiding memory of that. You know, it's like liberals love live music. Um, and um, which may possibly be true. I, I, I don't know. But it, but it just really smelt like political opportunism. Mm. And, um, you know, so... You know that all that all that kind of stuff. You know when it when it becomes too much of a of a public issue, a public um, concern, or government concern, or, or or even a kind of a you know a governing body that presumably uh, makes decisions based on some kind of. Um, you know, what cultural assets are worth preserving, uh, and, and yeah, 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 yeah. So that's 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 me. I mean, I and I think that you know part of the thing with the tote is it's kind of an unlovely building. It's it's not it's not a it's not a wonderful example of anything except. I mean, it is an old, you know, it's a late nineteenth century. I think it's eighteen seventies, eighties. It is quite old. I uh, I don't, don't want to see more apartments go up, and so I can see why mm, that that would yeah. be, that's like what would replace it is is potentially something that you you could say well what we really it's what we don't want not what we do yeah not what we do but you know when you think about i mean there's lots of other beloved venues around town or one one time beloved venues and still beloved in memory venues around town that have been um transformed into um apartments i can think of just you know five off the top of my head um it's always it's always nasty. You always wonder what those people think they're buying into. But I guess also, you know, people are desperate for somewhere to live. Yeah, and absolutely. And, and I just want to clarify, we've got some text coming in. I know, you know, there's a lot of people sort of passionate about this issue and I've got a vested interest as well. I mean, I've been to the mm. Tote and, and loved my experience there many times. Mm. Um, I'm not suggesting that the last chance owners are kind of calling for government funding or anything. There's um, right. that, that was a crowdfunding campaign. The community came out in support of that. Correct. And I'm not getting into the minutiae of how much was raised. It's more about the issue of crowdfunding totally. um, to save the venue. That's sort of what we're talking about in that context. We're not sort of taking sides or, or anything no. like that. But I was sort of thinking about it, a chapter in, in your 
book about sort of about dogs in space and the legacy of that film that I think Caroline Hawkins wrote about sort of DIY culture and transient venues and very much um, sort of in line, I suppose, with the spirit of that little band mm. scene where things would come and go. As you kind of outlined at the beginning, the tote is kind of a bit of a, a unique um, case in some ways because it has been around for a long time and it's it's withstood sort of changes and gentrification around Collingwood as well. Of course, there are places springing up in Melbourne that um, maybe not sort of back in the same as back in the heyday and sort of the, the 70s and 80s, but there are places that come and go still and obviously places further out from the city become sort of music and, and cultural hotspots for a time. But do you think that, that, that given that the history of the tote, there will be a continued sustained community um, kind of sentiment to keep it going for as long as possible? I would, I would imagine. I mean, I think that's what we're seeing. I think people are really desperate to keep it going. And, I, you know, sorry to keep hedging, sort of making these, um, you know, statements, strong statements and then hedging. I mean, I totally understand, like you do, why people feel so strongly about it. Mm. Um, yeah, Carolyn, um, it would have been great to have her on and I asked her if she was around next week, uh, this week and she said she's going to be in Japan. So I guess maybe Parsnip are touring or something. But she did write a really great chapter in... Uh, the Dogs in Space book that I um, co-edited with Sophie Perillo about um, uh, sort of in, in a temporary unofficial venues. That's what she was interested in. But, of course, one of those, the main one that she talked about, um, I think it can now be revealed, was one year. Yeah, in, that's um, right, on Johnson in, Street. On Johnson Street, was very close to where the tote is. And she didn't name it in the in the actual chapter. But... Um, yeah, so there's there's that, but there's also in the in the Dogs in Space book, there's um, Sarah Taylor's amazing chapter about like tracking um, the way that um, you know particular bands where they played over a period of time around Melbourne. I mean, she's looking at, at she was looking at the Ears and NXS in um, in the early eighties, but um, you know, there's there's always that. I mean, I think the point that I would take from both of those chapters for the purposes of our discussion here is that. Those things always change. Mm. Like the tote, the weird thing about the tote is that it didn't close down in 1985, and you know five people remember it fondly. You know, probably as many people as remember Tony's Trattoria fondly. Um, the um, yeah, it just uh, it just it just kept going. You know, the um, my. Um, my my much missed uh, hundred year old grandmother used to say. You know, used to, people used to ask her why she. Um, lived so long, and she used to say, "I just didn't die." Well, and that's kind of the, the tote. You know, the tote could say that, <laughs> and so far, so good. But um, I think it's, you know, I think it's one to watch. I think it's a really interesting uh, situation that uh, partly, you know, these things in Melbourne, we, we have these things. We have the exhibition buildings, we have trams, we have things that no one actually got round to, you know, getting rid of them. Yeah. And then one day, the people wake up. And go well, well. That's iconic, um, but it's sort of part of what it is. Is um, it's a legacy of failure to uh, to you know stop something existing. Um, and uh, the tote it has it has it has it has uh, survived in a in a pretty extraordinary way. So maybe it will will continue to. To do so, I think it's really interesting to to see this happening. Yeah, right now it's going to be one to watch for sure. Totally. It's um it's been great having you on the show, Dave. Thanks as well for um to all you out there for all your texts. Um, I'm going to be away for about five weeks. I don't know when we'll see each other again, but when we do, oh my god, that'll be a good time. Yeah. Okay. See right. ya. Thanks. Triple R.
Elections took place in Turkey over the weekend in what has been described by some as the biggest challenge of Pre- uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's two-decade rule. His main challenger is Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, who represents a six-party opposition alliance. The elections took place amid an economic crisis coming in the aftermath to February's devastating earthquake and tensions around the war with Ukraine. Tejkan Gumush is an expert in Turkish democracy. He's published a recent book on Turkey his political leaders and joins me now in studio. Tez, it's great to have you back on the show. Welcome. Always a pleasure, Dylan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invite. Absolute pleasure. And look, we didn't really know what the situation would be by the time you came in um, to talk about the election this morning. Where do things currently stand? It's it's nothing. It's not settled, uh, the president. So just to give a background, there was two um, election, simultaneous elections happening. So one was for the parliament, the parliamentary makeup. And the other one was for the presidency. And if people don't know, Turkey went to an executive presidential system uh, a few years ago, which pretty much gives the person in the seat of the presidency unfettered powers over the state, over government. So it's like a single-man rule. It's very authoritarian. And Erdogan's been in that seat since then, but he's also, but in total, he's been in power for 20 years. So, yes, so it's very fluid. Uh, what we can, what we do know, even though there's there's still uh, uh, millions of um, votes that haven't been counted yet, and it seems that the government is constantly looking to delay the vote count, especially in regions where the opposition is the strongest, uh, or the opposition candidate, Kılıçdaroğlu, is the strongest. Um, but what we do know certainly is that looking at the trends, that the government has retained its and its allies have retained the majority in parliament. But the presidential election, which is the which is the main, which is the main one that that really counts, is still very very close. Um, and it looks like it's going to go to a second round because to win the presidential seat, you need to have over 50% majority of votes. So it's looking like, um, depending on what, what figures you look at, so it, it, it's looking like the opposition is, opposition candidate Kılıçdaroğlu is about 47 48%, and Erdogan is showing up 45%. But I've also seen figures where Erdogan is at 49%, and Kılıçdaroğlu is sitting at like 46%. So mm. either way, none of them have gotten over the 50% threshold, and there's still votes to be counted, so you know it, it, it's, either one could win depending on on you know that final count. Yeah, yeah. but looking like a, a second runoff in, in a couple of weeks' time is, is a likely scenario. At yes, this stage. probably. If I was to put my money um, on on one of those outcomes, it definitely would be the second round, um, and which is due, which will be scheduled for May 28th, so yeah. in two weeks' time. Yeah, and uh, I mean we've spoken to you before about the sort of increasing authoritarian turn in, in Turkey under. Um, President Erdogan's leadership. You mentioned the constitutional change a number of years back that gave the president a whole bunch of increased powers and there was the subverted coup attempt some years ago as well. In terms of the election itself, um, also keeping in mind the role of kind of state-run media, how much confidence is there in the actual system? It's... To be honest, it's people are... Um, what the opposition did was they really organised and sent out and civil society as well train that people as observe, a ballot box observers. Mm. So, you, I think pretty much everywhere in Turkey, everywhere there's, there's, there was voting, there was electoral observers by the opposition. So very, very much um, uh, oversight, strong oversight by by you know civil society opposition um, parties and, and their followers. 
Uh, in terms of um, there might be um, maybe some, I guess layman says, some shiftiness here and there, but not. it's not going to be massive. Like It's not going to be millions of votes. But what the government is actually, what I've constantly been seeing throughout the night is where the opposition is strongest in the regions, it's constantly getting recounts done. Like, no, we don't agree with that count, mm-hmm. uh, recount. So they're trying to tire out the, the opposition sort of um, electoral observers, so they tire out throughout the night. And what they're doing is there's actually a massive hold-up in those ballot bags to be taken to, to be accepted by the electoral board. So there's still massive lines. It's probably like three, two, three in the morning in Turkey. And if you look on Twitter, there's still lines and lines of um, ballot box officials looking to hand in those sacks of uh, votes. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's still hundreds of thousands or, 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 I don't know, maybe a millions that are still yet to be counted and they haven't been accepted. So there's a, the government is, you know, um, given that the government c- controls everything, all these main institutions like the, the electoral board, they're trying to slow down the count. Um, I'm not sure whether they just want to be annoying or whether they see that these votes can actually push the opposition can that push it all over that 50% threshold and trying to uh, stop that from happening. Yeah, yeah. see what's going on yeah. there. And um, what about turnout? Turnout is massive. So there was, I saw a figure which was 93%. Wow. But I think revised, revised figures is looks more realistically about 88%. But still in terms of, you know, when we look at Western democracies, and Turkey is actually, you know, you're not, you don't have to vote. So it's actually your choice, unlike Australia, where we're actually compelled to vote legally. So that's a massive turnout. But Turkey throughout history has always had large voter turnouts. Mm. Um, so there's a massive belief in the ballot box within, within society in Turkey. Yeah. yeah, and I wonder if you can talk us through what I suppose is at stake in this election and more in terms of the way that the different um, or two you know, respective presidential candidates have framed their leadership. Um, what, what has been the nature of their campaigns for, for president? Yeah, it's been polar opposites where Erdogan, you know, what's worked for him successfully is to polarise society mm. and create a, a demonisation of the opposition or the other. So it's this rolling, you know, um, so the... Um, the, the, the Kurds or be the opposition, and this this time around, he pretty much they labelled the op- entire opposition as being terrorists or being um, LG, um, uh, you know, queer. So pretty much he came out. There was no number of statements like, if you vote for them or if you're with them, they're all queer and you're queer. So that sort right. of at, like we saw it, what, what what we're seeing in Western uh, right wing populism, yeah. where there's this. Um, demonization of of queer community that's sort of been adopted in, in in Turkish politics as well, which is weirdly weirdly as well. Happened in Brazil too with Bolsonaro. Yeah, yeah. Of so it's like, yeah. I mean, these people are queer folk. They're gay. They're, they're lesbians, mm. and that's they're going to ruin family values. And thankfully, it really hasn't. Well, I don't know. I guess maybe it's my echo chamber. It hasn't really worked. But it's there's been a strong pronounced um, narrative of demonising um, the opposition in that way and demonising uh, the queer community and the trans community. So, um, yeah, so it's, that's been Erdogan's um, uh, 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 campaign strategy. Whereas Klitschroll has been the reverse, has been his... They've constantly been doing this, the love symbol um, with their hands, so that's been the sim- symbol, symbol of, of, of the opposition. It's been very inclusive, very pluralistic... 
Um, he's he's gone everywhere in the country and he's met everyone with a soft tone. He hasn't looked to fight um, fire with fire with Erdogan. Mm. So it's been a completely um, opposed, I guess, a opposite strategy and um, very open inclusive soft demeanor looking to wel- welcome everyone on board whereas Erdogan and his allies have been very very you know um uh, I guess conservative right-wing populist and and looking to demonize everyone that is you know as a threat to the country somehow or threat to family values yeah. yeah and they are sort of tried and true political tactics aren't they yeah in, it's in worked cases, for 20 years say. i mean for the best part of 20 years it's been yeah exactly like you said i mean unfortunately it's completely polarized the country mm. and that's that's not a good thing when you're when you're a citizen in that country but you know, he maintains the power and that's all that matters. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about the, the last presidential election and where it, it, you know, it came after the suppression of an attempted coup and mm-hmm. there was also obviously the conflict going on in Syria and conflict with the Kurds. It kind of played into mm-hmm. kind of a pro-nationalist agenda yeah. at that point as well. Obviously, context is really important for elections anywhere. Mm-hmm. There's an economic crisis in, in Turkey. There's, of course, a devastating earthquake yes. that happened just a few months ago as well. Do, do those circumstances sort of make people I don't know, more likely to be open to the more inclusive, um, I suppose you might say, you know, you know productive approach of um, the likes of opposition candidate uh, Kalishta Rolu? Um, uh, I have to be – I'm looking at the figures and, mm. when I, you know, just as I recalled before, uh, the AKP and its allies uh, have maintained the majority in parliament. Yeah. So in that sense, yes, there's been a drop-off in their vote – but not substantial enough where they've lost the majority. And, it, and also, when we look at the number of the parties that are in there, it, it, I don't know if this was even possible in Turkey, but it's actually shifted more to the right. right. So we've got pro-Sharia um, parties now and also, uh, yeah, very pro-Sharia, anti-female um, uh, rights or women's rights. And forget queer and, and trans and uh, that, that community. Like, that's, that is, is, you know... Um, not even uh, talked about in that sense. But so you know, these these people are completely come out and say that women has women have to obey mm. a man, and so these are types of representatives now in parliament. Um, so yeah, the I guess relative when we look at previous elections, yeah, Erdogan's vote has dropped off. I mean, when we're looking at his his he might be below the opposition candidates' votes um, by a couple of percentage. So you know, in previous um, elections, he's romped at home yeah. easily, um, well over fifty percent. But now, so so in that sense, yes, the um, opposition's strategy, cultural strategy, strategy has been working. But also the impact of of context as well, mm. like you say, economic crisis, the the earthquake, and so forth have um, helped in that manner. But not so much where he's he's looks like he's going to lose outright just yet. Yeah. Speaking with Tejkan Gumush, an expert in Turkish politics, he's also got um, a brand new book out as well on um, Turkey's political leaders. And um, I mean, it sounds like from what I've read that there's been a really heavy domestic focus in this presidential campaign. Often in sort of the international media, we talk about the implications of, of Turkey's leadership and how it might change kind of the geopolitical, um, diplomatic kind of relationship between different countries and the like. Has that at all kind of figured in the campaign not so much this this election um yes previous elections like you point out very correctly that there was this constantly um baiting the west demonizing the west that rally around around the flag but this election the opposition 
were very highly organised. They a lot of the times they dictated the narrative. So it was the first time that a lot of us observers saw Erdogan and the AKP be a bit more reactive, whereas previously they were more the ones that were leading the narrative, and it was the opposition trying to catch up and, mm. and react. So it was more more the opposition doing that in that sense, and their focus was internal problems, the economy. Um, what was happening in those earthquake regions, the inability of the government to help, um, corruption and so forth. So they really were able to dictate terms and bring it back to local issues rather than, uh, you know, uh, the glory of great Turkey in yeah. in international sphere. Yeah. And what about Kamal Kalishtarolu himself? What kind of politician is he and what, what vision of Turkey's future is he presenting? Kalishtarolu is... He's in his early seventies. He's a former bureaucrat, very soft-spoken. He is from a Alevi, uh, which is a minority Muslim sect in Turkey, and of a Kurdish origin as well. Even though he doesn't play that up as as his as his sort of um, trump card or or to call for votes from the Kurdish electorate, but he is that doesn't deny it. Um, he's very soft-spoken. He's been. In, the leader of the main opposition party, Republican People's Party, so I'll use the Turkish acronym, CHP, um, since 2010. He's lost, I mean, he's lost every election that his party's been in. He's lost all of them, but he's still maintained power. So obviously, you know, I will argue that he has some sort of centralised grip of of the opposition party because he he hasn't let go of that. Um, But in terms of his outward demeanour, he's he's completely opposite of Erdogan. And, um, you know, and a lot of people on, on social media do call him Dede, which is grandfather. Um, so it's a very endearing um, term. So, yeah, he is at the moment, I mean, this campaign in particular, he is what the, op- he's the opposite of what Erdogan presents. He's not that hard, strong man where he's going to bang his fist against the table and mm. yell and scream. And I think a lot of people criticised him and his candidature um, because of that, he wasn't this strong man to fight, um, to be able to fight um, Aradon. But he showed that, you know, being soft and being more inclusive is, is highly effective. Yeah. And you mentioned the AK, AKP has been successful in parliamentary elections. Um, you know, it looks like on, on the current numbers, there might be a, a runoff for the presidential um, election in a couple of weeks' time because mm. neither candidate has reached the, the 50% um, uh, sort of high watermark, I suppose. If uh, Kalishtalogu is successful, how consequential is that for Turkey? Uh, extremely. Uh, he's come out and said that, you know, it's going to be a completely different way of doing politics. It's going to be very inclusive and it's going to be much more transparent. And they're going to look to reinstitute a parliamentary system. Now, that's going to be hard given that if he's president and there's a, a majority of the parliament which is under, under control of the AKP and, and its allies then getting that through is going to be very difficult or not going to happen at all because you're going to need some level of uh, majority parliamentary votes to to allow for that that system change or to leave for that system change. But in terms of other things, I mean, you know, as as we uh, recounted that the presidency has a lot of power and um, unaccountable power as well. It doesn't need to be transparent and it's not beholden to parliament, um, their decisions and inaction of law. So... Definitely. I mean, it will be a massive change in the way uh, things are done in Turkey. Um, I mean, this is... I have to sort of also be very cynical and pessimistic. It, it, throughout Turkish history, all opposition opposition members, parliamentarians, have been 
pro-democracy. Mm. But when they've gotten to power, um, it, it's been a different game. They've, they've sort of forgotten to play with democratic rules or through a democratic character. Now, where they have, have someone having that much power in their hands over time corrupts, <laughs> corrupts them. But, um, but, you know, I think a change, the country needs a change because it's a very repressive um, uh, environment, especially if you're an opposition person. Yeah, and Erdogan's been there for, for 20, 20 years, years, as you yeah. say. It's a long time. Um, does uh, Kalich Doroglu have any sort of particular stance sort of towards NATO? I know there's been, um, you know, back and forth around um, sort of Scandinavian mm-hmm. countries joining NATO and the yeah. like, and Erdogan's used that, you know, to his advantage domestically as well. Will there be any change to kind of geopolitical relationships and the like if he is successful? Yeah, I definitely think that if he was to come into power there will be much, um, I guess, a turn towards, I guess, more friendly relations with, with neighbours, in particular NATO, Sweden. I don't think that would be an issue because Erdogan used that issue as very much for local political mm-hmm. gain. Look what we're doing. Look how strong Turkey is. Um, so he very used it for his populist um, uh, populism. So definitely we'll see a, a stark change in, in foreign policy. It won't be a complete change um, because there's, a, there's realities in, in Turkish politics that, you know, um, that you need to pander to as well. So Russia, you know, in terms of Russian gas, there's 40%, 45% of Russia supplies yeah. gas. There's strong bonds. So you can't cut them off. So you are still – those, those material aspects still will be able to – dictate influence things but in terms of having this very anti-west rhetoric um and doing things which are very pro-russian or anti-nato and that will definitely uh change and i think we will see a very quickly um uh, i guess warming of relations again between many western countries or, or nato and and Turkey. Yeah. Um, there is quite a significant Turkish population here in Melbourne. What do you get up to on election day slash night? Not much. I don't know. It's, <laughs> I, I sort of was at home uh, throughout and then I didn't sleep much, constantly looking at Twitter and, and looking at YouTube. Um, so there's really nothing. Our vote, we had our votes, um, international sort of uh, citizens were able to vote a week prior I think the last date was the 8th or 9th of, of, of May. So we had two weeks to vote. So, you know, the consulate here in Melbourne was open till 9. So, it was, you know, it was anticlimax in that sense. So we didn't have this one big vote um, today or yesterday. So Just a few people in the queue, that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, I'm sure people are doing – would have had barbecues. But it's that time difference as well. It's, yeah. you know, um, it's – what is it, 10, 10, 11 o'clock, 10, 30, Monday mornings, and we still don't know the results. So – you know, you really can't do much, much then. But, but I'm sure if if there's a opposition or, or AKP victory in this round or Erdogan victory in this round or second round, segments of the community will definitely be having barbecues or or, 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 or parties and posting up on their social media to basically stick it up the the other side. You know, saying, look, look at us, we did it again, or look at us, we we beat Erdogan and we're finally in power. So yeah, you'll get that get that poking of the bear. Um, which happens in the diaspora. <laughs> and yeah, and it might have to wait a little bit longer if that does eventuate. Yes. Um, as you say, that it looks like there may be a runoff in a couple of weeks' time for the president of Turkey. Um, w- look, we mentioned your book a couple of times um, in this interview. Before I let you go, um, you have brought in a, a nice hard copy of it. Um, tell us about the book and, and also you've got a launch coming up for it. Here in yes, Melbourne. so 
Myself, I'll be having the book launch at, in discussion with um, Dr. David Titsensaw, who was my PhD supervisor. So we'll be talking about the book, but also we'll be talking about the elections at Australian Institute of International Affairs um, based in East Melbourne on the 1st of June um, from 5.30 to 6.30. So if anyone is interested and wants to get a deep understanding and wants to have an engaged discussion with us, um, please do come along. There's going to be um, copies of the books, book on sale, and you know, if anyone wants to buy one, I don't know, uh, I'll be happy to sort of <laughs> sign it. Sign for it. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, the book is about basically, uh, you know, the question I ask is why Turkey has failed to consolidate democracy, even though it's had 70 plus years of multi-party politics. It's ebbed and flowed. There's been constant crises. There's been political violence. There's been coups. And I've looked at the role of political elites as being central to the reason why Turkey has been unable to um, consolidate democracy. And I've, what I've shown is there is a very strong authoritarian um, thread that runs from leader to leader to leader. And Erdogan is uh, perhaps he is the most extreme version, manifestation of this authoritarian culture. And this is in the party, but also in the broader um, uh, governing um, space as well. And but you know and like I said, I think I've said this previously in other interviews that it's this the book is not about Erdogan. Mm. Erdogan is a chapter or the last two chapters, but I look at every key political leader in Turkey's history and I look at show and and I and I discuss how these authoritarian traits have hindered the deepening of democracy, but also have led to its failure in 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 those uh, in those periods where it's completely failed and, and broken down. So and I think the lesson. And it's a lesson for people who are into democracy or comparative democratization that elites um, acting in democratic um, character and means uh, is highly important for a democracy to survive. And if we only look at Trump, what he was able to do in four years to a democracy, what we thought had uh, had strong checks on power, strong division on power, what he was able to do in four years, but also the Republicans in conservative states, what they're doing in their super majorities, denying votes uh, for for African-Americans or the minority groups and, and so forth. You know, there's plenty of examples where we have to keep those politicians accountable um, because what they do, what they say, how they govern matters in a democracy yeah. and the health of a democracy and that's the i guess that's is the crux of the book yeah but i showed the turkish as turkish example as a case study yeah and that's as, as you say there's so much resonance um in, in many different contexts for those kinds of issues as well it's um it's been really great to, to have your insights on the show this morning don't quite have have a result but it's great to get a check in and um and we'll see what happens in potentially a couple of weeks time yes thanks dylan really appreciate it and you know um let's hope for the best outcome for the country Triple R. And coming up in just a moment, really excited to be chatting with Tokyo-born NAM-based artist Al Shimada, all about her brand new track about blank featuring Rala Zulu. I thought it'd make a lot of sense to have a listen to the track before I get into that chat with Al. So um, this is a brand new single about blank from Al Shimada. Then I'm um, coming up just after going to be having a good old chat all about it.
That is about blank. The new track from Tokyo-born Nam-based artist Al Shimada featuring Rara Zulu. The genre-bending violinist, producer and DJ has been putting out music for a number of years, touring and sharing stages with the likes of Lonnie Liston-Smith, Giles Peterson, the Australian Art Orchestra, Sampa the Great, Freddie Gibbs, Floating Points and more. That's uh, quite the roll call. This latest offering follows last year's home location, exploring themes of diaspora cultures, belonging and finding solace in music. El Shimada is currently over in Bali, but very thrilled to have her joining me now via the net. Welcome. How are you going? I'm feeling great. I'm just really excited that this song's finally out, so thank you for having me. My absolute pleasure. And and that was the the premiere of the track, I believe, the first time it's been broadcast over the airwaves. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, very nice to have that privilege. How exciting. And, uh, I mean, I I did see via your phone camera that you're in the lush surrounds of Bali at the moment. Looks like beautiful weather over there. What are you getting up to in Bali? Well, um, I did a a DJ show in Jakarta, which is, yeah, a few hours away from here. But I'm celebrating my birthday, actually, today. So I'm just chilling, really. Happy birthday. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Have we got you up earlier than you'd normally be up on your birthday? <laughs> no, this is nice. I Now I have more birthday because of you, so thank you. Excellent. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I was thinking about the themes in your album from last year, Home Location, mm-hmm. and also the fact that you're, you know, joining from abroad and have done, um, you know, quite a bit of sort of touring internationally and the like. I wonder if you can sort of talk about that relationship you have to home and, and how that was worked through in putting together that album. Sure. Well, um, I'm born in Tokyo, so in Japan. Uh, oh, I was raised in um, Tokyo as well, and I uh, moved to so-called Australia when I was about 15. And I think ever since, yeah, I've, I've definitely been moving around a lot and I needed to uh, find a sense of home that is not only tied to a location or even potentially like cultural identity or racial identity. Um, I needed to find home, I guess, yeah. in things that I could carry with me anywhere I go that was that felt like mine. And yeah, the album feels like home to me because it's made with, I guess that intention and it was also a journey of um, finding home in multiple, yeah, things like uh, music or stories or, you know, even, uh, yeah, I guess anything really, even collaborators in, in the album, yeah. Yeah. I mean, is that something that you've reflected on much? Because, I mean, as you say, you came to, to um, Australia quite young. I understand you spent a little bit of time in, in New York before coming here and, you know, spent some time yeah. in Byron Bay and then, um, you know, more recently kind of settling in, 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 in uh, Melbourne and the like. Is that yeah. – because I suppose that's been quite a defining experience for you, moving to new places, and in a way that, that involves a kind of reinvention – of the self. Is that something that you have sort of grappled with or that's just been kind of normalised based on your experience? I think it was quite intentional, even like, um, even as a 15-year-old, I guess, a girl, I I really, really wanted to move, you know? So, like, I think I, um, yeah, I moved with, like, I guess my, my intention and 
Yeah, moving around has been like such a, I guess, new experience and like, you know, new new way of finding myself in different parts of the world and different environment. Um, yeah. And when but you put together... I, I, I do find... I, I do find Nam to be one of um, I, fe- I find Nam to be like one of my home for sure. Yeah, is that? Uh, I mean, I'm wondering about the relationship to music and, and music production there because you do a lot of collaborating. Is that sense of, of I suppose, mm-hmm. belonging to Nam uh, partly based on the nature of those relationships and, and musical collaborations that you've done here? Hundred percent. I think like um, it's almost like a collaboration is a. I guess a diary or like archive of me wanting to um, document and reserve the the sense of home or like sense of connections that I find so that it doesn't get, you know, lost only in my memory, you know. So I use it as like almost like a a diary to, yeah, I guess the connections fostered or Music has such an impactful way of marking itself on our memories as well. I mean, I'm sure a lot of listeners have that feeling of when they hear a song, they remember, you know, where they were when they first heard it, maybe on a particular holiday. Um, What about when it comes Mm -hmm. to making music, when you listen back to your songs, are are you sort of taken back to the experiences you had at the time of of creation and production? 100%. But And then things like... um that last album, I think it's like, it took me about like two years to write it. So I was moving around and also like, you know, I was changing. It was um, through the time of COVID as well. So like a lot have changed. So I grew with it as well as like only, not only capturing the moment, but I think I grew with it, you know? Yeah. And this latest offering from you, it's such a brilliant track that, that we all just heard about Blank, um, featuring collaboration um, with Rara Zulu. Tell us about that song. What is it kind of expressing for you and, and how did you come to um, uh, hook up with Rara Zulu on this one? I know you'd worked with, with Rara before, but, but yeah, what was the impetus mm-hmm. behind this track? This song was really, I think, honest because my last album was fairly like conceptual and I really like thought about concept and I executed the songs after that where I felt like this song, I just felt really emotional, you know, and and, and then like, I guess the song was just like, um, <laughs> song held me in like, you know, I guess being emo. Um, But the song is really about, um, I guess, me trying to find myself, trying to find the balance of being, like, this strong, independent woman that I've become in this, like, journey of moving around a lot and, I guess, being away from, yeah, my home. And um, I just wanted to... I think I really craved, like, being vulnerable and not having, like this strong facade, maybe. And the song is, uh, like, really me just looking for a place to be held and place to be able to break down and, I don't know, be messy and be raw and real. Um, And, yeah, song doesn't really have a resolve and, like, um, I guess maybe that even also is my growth, is not having to have this, like, I don't know, final note or like a result to the song. I'm just like feeling it and that's, you know, I'm just documenting the feelings. 
and that's about it, you know? Yeah, that's right. It can just be the, the expression of emotion and a feeling mm. and, and that's, that's in, entirely fine. And, and, you know, that's, that's where art comes mm. from in the end. Um, where does the creative process start for you? Because you are a multi-instrumentalist. Your music is so interesting, um, you know, crossing different genres. There's different sort of electronic elements and instrumentation going into it. Like how do you mm-hmm. actually start out when you're writing a song? Um, it really depends. Sometimes it comes from like a phone recording or something. Um, I often like include, I guess, like even an like, iPhone voice memo or like of my environment. I think that's always consistent in um, my music writing. But with this song, I think I started with a violin. Um, I had like a violin melody in my mind and I put that into um, like a production so in, into Ableton on my computer. And then I programmed, I guess, you know, production like drums and bass and chords around it. And I brought it to my, yeah, one of my closest friends, Rara Zulu. Um, yeah, but the song really also is kind of us, like, you know, me and her having conversations about all these feelings and feeling held in that. And so she felt like such a perfect person to um, collaborate with because I didn't have to explain to her what the song is about. Or, <laughs> She's you got know, it. <laughs> She's she's had me over and over talking blah 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 until late night, so she was like, okay, okay I got you, you know, I I, I feel the same, um, yeah, yeah, and I mean you've also so I feel like this song is really like an extension of like a long chat of like sisters just holding each other, and then now it's a, it's not only on like uh, I don't know our rooms or our phone calls but it's, it's in the song up in the in the world now you know yeah that's I a really think it's really cute Absolutely. It's, it's such a beautiful way of, of describing it because music, you know, collaborating musically with someone is a form of conversation and you're expressing things in different ways than you do or you can just through conversation, but it can be a really mm. special extension of that. And, and sort of, you know, mm. artists have, have talked about the kind of unspoken relationship they have with their collaborators. It's something that's totally unique mm. to the form itself and what they actually produce. And, you know, your music, as you've touched on it, it touches on quite introspective themes there's a real sort of intimacy to some of those ideas that that you've just touched on but you also have described it as peaceful protest and um the idea of dance floor activism as well that's inclusive honest and raw so how do you sort of think about your music as being political and and a form of protest well with this well with last album it was definitely um highly political in a way that like um I was protesting against, I guess, um, an identity that was put on me just by by the world, you know, without, I guess, my autonomy. And, you know, um, to be able to define home and uh, who I am um, and then also be able to do that with... Um, with a bunch of people, you know, who comes from different backgrounds and if it's... I guess diverse in not only cultural backgrounds but in in many ways that we identify ourselves. That felt really unique to be able to define ourselves through what we think our home is. And um, I've always been, um, I guess, 
really mindful of like our live gigs and things like that. Be really intentional as safe, you know, safe space and something that we can like create like a sense of um for the lack of what I was maybe imagined utopia or something. Like yeah. at live gigs we can kind of forget about like where we come from and like what background or what class we are and really you know have a space to connect um authentically and i think as musicians we get the privilege of able being able to facilitate that um that space for us to really explore what what world could be almost you know yeah um yeah I'm interested in. Um, but for for new for for this new single, I think like it's a lot more personal than um, political. Yeah. Yeah, and in terms of of that live environment too, and and mm. I suppose bringing your music to life with a band. I think there's there like six members in in the live version of of your band. How do you? bring it together and, and I suppose faithfully represent the you know incredible production that we can all hear on your songs. Sorry, can you say, can you say that again? Sorry. Yeah, I, I'm, just, I'm just interested in, I suppose, the difference between your produced music and the live version, like what we can sort of go and see with band members mm-hmm. on a stage compared to the, you know, really beautiful production we can hear in, in your tracks. Sure, yeah. Well, um, it really depends. Um, sometimes I play solo and sometimes I get to play with a collective I lead called Call Dreamers. Uh, Call Dreamers um, include Rara Zulif, who is the feature of a new single, um, and Court Pistol, um, and Rory, who is a, a vocalist and, um, of, of Izzy as well. Um, Jamal Yami, who is also um, sometimes a part of Izzy and also a rapper himself. Uh, Lucky Perella, who is on drums, and Maru Elias, who is on percussion. And we recently had a addition of Bella Waru, who has been um, choreographing and the movement directing. So, like, she's a uh, uh, dancer uh, and a movement artist. Um, so, yeah, I think, like, we do music that is, like, you know, obviously there is my beat, which, yeah, I guess everything starts off and we digest it into uh, a choir section. So we all sing and then we have drums and percussion and also some choreography. So it's, yeah, it's, it's I guess, a unique format of, of live direction, uh, live, live performance. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot going on and a lot of consideration that, that goes into that. Um Look, your live performance um, sounds sort of, you know, really mesmerising for those who haven't got along to see you yet. You've got some shows coming up this year, including a Vivid Festival. You're performing here at Rising as well. Give us a, a bit of a, a lowdown, yeah. I suppose, on what you've got um, on the agenda in the months ahead. Sure. So I've got a... Uh, I'm playing at Vivid Festival on 10th of June. Um, that is supporting one of my musical hero, um, Flying Lotus, Um um yeah, it's a thick lineup. Um Liv um Liv is playing also close contests and um uh, yeah, we're really excited to play that. Um and then we're also playing a Rising Festival here in Nam. Um 
supporting Avanjaya and Liv at Forum. Um, yeah, I'm really excited. I'm, I've never played Forum, and then that has been definitely like, uh, I guess, a milestone or like something that I've been wanting to do for years. So, yeah, I'm really excited to play at that stage. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What, a, what a beautiful space to play in. <laughs> Um, and so how much longer are you in Indonesia for? Are you just sort of um, just sort of heading back to our shores pretty soon? or? Um, yeah, I'm here for another two days. I'm just, yeah, I guess resting and holidaying and celebrating, really. And then can you hear the background music? I can't hear the background <laughs> music, no. Can you hear okay, it? Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, the locals are playing some, I think, like Indonesian Bob Marley. All oh, right, that would actually be some really <laughs> yeah, nice yeah. ambience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm here for two days and I'm I'm heading back to Nam, um, ho- hopefully for more creations and yeah, also to finish off a video that I've directed um, for this song about Blank. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping to finish that soon. That's that's. Um, that's also with the same crew as well, with Rara Zulu and Bellawara on the movement direction. So, yeah, that should come out in two weeks or so. And, yeah. Excellent. Well, we'll keep our eyes and peeled. And for the set as well, yeah. Yeah, eyes peeled for, for that. And um, what are you getting up to for your birthday today? Any special things you're treating yourself to? Um, apparently my partner booked a paragliding session. Oh, so wow. Let's hope that I survive i've never fly i've never flew before i don't even know if it's i'm kind of scared but it should be fine <laughs> yeah it looks like beautiful blue skies over there based on what i could see mm-hmm. through your, your camera lens so it looks like a perfect day for mm-hmm. it yeah and i'm actually also gonna shoot the re- rest of the video um here today as well so let's see how it turns out Excellent. Well, all the best for that, especially the paragliding session. I hope it all goes according to plan. (laughs) Yeah, let's see. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you um, this morning. Big congrats on the track. It's absolutely brilliant and look forward to seeing you here back in Nam playing, um, as you just told us, down at the Rising Festival later on this year. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.